You know, have anybody ever had, you ever heard of the phrase big gulps, huh? We're going to tackle five to six chapters of scripture this morning. So big gulps, huh? We're not going to read every single word, but we are going to read a, this will be the longest scripture reading I have ever done here at King's Chapel. And um, it goes this long. So if you need to sit down, feel free. But we'll stand in honor of God's word and to keep our legs moving during the midst of this. Hear God's word. We're going to be bouncing all over these chapters. We'll begin in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And here's what it says. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. And drop down to chapter 7. We'll read verses 1 through 13. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet, and you shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. And then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. In verse 6, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. And then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle. Then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. And then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up, all, up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Everybody doing okay? Don't straighten your knees. Don't lock your knees. Chapter 8, verses 6 through 10, and then verse 13 through 15. So Aaron stretched out his, over, out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And Pharaoh said, Tomorrow. So Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one, no one like the Lord our God. Then drop down to verse 13. And the Lord did according to the word of, God, of Moses. The frogs died in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. It's an understatement. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Drop down to verse 17. I'm reading through verse 19. And Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. And all the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. And the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So they were gnats on man and beast. And then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now verse 21. 
Or else, if you would not let my people go, this is Moses speaking, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and on your people and in your houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground in which they stand. But on that day, I will, depart, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. And thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. When there came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses, throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Drop down to verse 30. And so Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Now chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And the Lord, the next day the Lord did this thing, and all the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Continuing in verses 8 through 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. And it shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and, be, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon the all the upon the magicians and upon the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. And continuing on, verse 13, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause the heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. And now, therefore, get your livestock and all that you have in the field and to save shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. And then whoever, whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then drop down to verse 33 to 35. So Moses went out from the city, we're almost done, from Pharaoh and stretched out his hand to the Lord and the thunder of the, and the hail ceased and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. And one final chapter of chapter 10, verses 13 through 14. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt. And the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. And the locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled in the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. In verse 19, the Lord turned the wind into a strong east wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. And not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go. 
Then, verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt and a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt. Three days they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. And verse 27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. And then Pharaoh said to him, that's Moses, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. This ends a reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. And all God's people said, praise be the Lord's. Well, let it not be said that King Chapel doesn't care about the Word of God. You know, the, in the history of the church, we've, what has always been proclaimed and said is that the core of the church is both the preaching, but also the reading of the Word of God. And while God gives people in His church who may have gifts to study and to preach and teach the Word, what's beautiful is God's Word speaks on its own. Um, our slide guys, when I sent them to all these verses, they call and respond. And he said, we got enough scripture passages for the day. And it's like, actually, what I plan to do is just read it. And then I'm just going to say, amen, we're going to be done for the day. And that would suffice. I think God's word does speak, but I want to give some explanation this morning. Here's the theme. We don't have a whole lot of application time this morning because we're dealing with six chapters. And so we're going to be, this is a lot of teaching, a lot of just connecting the dots, a little bit of what's going on here but here's the theme of what's going on in these chapters. It begins, and the reason why I read those first verses in chapter 5 is what does Pharaoh say when Moses and Aaron first come to him? They say, let my people go, and what is Pharaoh's response? It's not just, no, the people might not be go, not go, but it's what? He says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And chapters 6 through 12, in particular 7 through 12, and the plagues, which are fairly famous from the biblical account, the plagues upon Egypt that God brings about are here to answer that question. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And God is about making sure Pharaoh and Israel and all the world knows who is the Lord. If you were to look through this text, one of the themes that comes up in the, the midst of this large reading is this desire of God. In chapter 7, verse 5, this is what God says. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. In verses 7, verse 17, chapter 7, verse 17, it says, Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know I am the Lord. In Exodus 8, verse 10, he said, he said tomorrow, Pharaoh said to Moses, and Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Exodus 9, verses 14 and 16, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. And two verses later, but for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed, may be known in all the earth. And then chapter 10, verse 2, he says that you may tell, he says to Israel, that you may tell in the hearing of your sons and your grandsons how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, so that what? You may know that I am the Lord. 
Last week we were introduced to the Lord, and this week we find out more about who is this Lord, this Yahweh. And the, the, the picture, the image that kept coming in my brain this week in regards to this interaction in chapters 5 through 12 is, have you ever watched like the old comic cartoons or read old kind of like Spider-Man or Superman or Batman and, and the dialogue between the villains and Superman or the villain and, and Batman, it is frankly so corny and stilted. And, but there's all these great kind of one-liners. Like someone, they might ask like, oh, who is Spider-Man? Spider-Man will punch him and go, now you know who Spider-Man is. Some kapow, right? And it'll be in big and yellow. Well, that's what's going on here. Pharaoh goes, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And chapter 6 through 12 is essentially God going, let me introduce you to Yahweh. (laughs) Kapow. Or meet your maker, Pharaoh. Kapow. That is what is going on here. Now, now that I've got your attention, with the ridiculous, let me say who I'm directing this, this sermon to this morning. Two different groups of people. First, I'm addressing this to those who ask Pharaoh's question. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? It's actually, it's actually could be described as the question that our culture asks. It's interesting to note that about Pharaoh is that he is in living in a similar culture that we live in. He is in a deeply pluralistic religious society in which it, the view is that you can have, well, it's actually polytheistic, you can have any gods and many gods. In fact, in Egypt, they had 114 gods at this time that they worshiped. And Hebrews, of course, had just this one God, Yahweh. But you know what's interesting is it's not offensive to Pharaoh that the Hebrews have their own God. What is it that is offensive to Pharaoh? What's offensive to Pharaoh is that this one God would have the audacity to show up and tell him what to do. People don't dislike the idea of God. Many people don't. Many people love the idea of a higher power or being, and they would say that there's different ways to get to God, but no one is to say one particular way, and that God is not supposed to engage in our life in such a way that he demands ultimate allegiance and claims to have ultimate authority in our life. It's not a problem to believe in God unless God says, here's how I want you to live. And that's one thing we cannot tolerate. And so our culture and what so many of us at the heart of our own hardness of heart is asking this question, who is the Lord? Who is he who has the audacity to show up and tell me what to do? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And this passage is here to answer that question, but this passage is also here to answer much the same question and issue that we've been looking at in our time in Exodus. Again, the original audience is to those who are God's people but people who are struggling to take up the task that God has given them for today, in which the things in which God has given them are hard, in which the mission that he has given them is difficult, it stretches them, it asks much of them, it challenges them to take risks, to extend beyond their capacity and ability, to perhaps continue to do the things that are mundane and boring, and yet God is calling them to continue to persevere in that task. And to this, to them, to those who are the people of God, who are taking up the mission of God, he comes to us and says, you who are struggling with God's mission in your life, he says this, remember who the Lord is. Remember who your God is. So like Pharaoh, maybe in a submissive form or maybe in a rebellious way, 
we can ask the question for this morning, who is the Lord that we should obey him? And God gives us three general answers over from the plagues. Three answers from the plagues that tell us who he is and why we should obey him. And the first is this, the Lord, I'm sorry to give you three descriptive words. I couldn't boil it down. The Lord is the true, supreme, and sovereign God. He's the true, supreme, and sovereign God. Last week we saw that Yahweh, the Hebrew word for the Lord, means I am who I am, which kind of means I'm the real God who is present with you. And the Lord's primary answer to Pharaoh's question, who is the Lord that I should obey him, is God shows up and says, I am the true God who reigns over all things as King of kings and Lord of lords over all of heaven and earth and over all creation. There is not one segment of this world that I don't call mine. And the primary and rather famous way in which God displays his supremacy in this world here in this section is through these plagues. Now, these plagues are not simply a mere brute force of power by God. What you need to see is that there is something significant and intentional and profound going on in each of these plagues. If, simply, if the plagues were simply meant to demonstrate God's brute force and power, then why in the world would God have plagues that involve frogs and darkness and gnats? Man, that's a powerful God right there. He brought gnats. I'm scared. This is, the, like, this is bizarre and odd that God would bring these kind of plagues. But more than that, God with, what is going on here is that God is not simply bringing simply brute force, but he's actually engaging and attacking the Egyptians from land and air and sea. This is a God at war. He comes after water and their food supply. He comes after their personal health. He comes after their future. He comes after those things that give them confidence and comfort. He comes after their religious life. And he comes after every aspect of life in Egypt. But more than that, God in every single sign and plague is directly confronting Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. It says this in chapter 12, verse 12. God says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night... And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. One of the clearest aspects of the count and exodus of the plagues is pointed out by both secular and evangelical scholars alike, is that each a plague, each plague is intentionally and specifically directed at one of the gods of Egypt. Let me see if I can just display this by walking through some highlights. We won't go through all nine that I went through today, but we'll just give you a few highlights. First, the Nile is turned to blood in the first plague. The Nile personified and was worshipped as a god in Egypt. It was the center of all of life, and the Nile god was known as Hepi. He was over the floods that gave life, life source to the fields of Egypt and that helped make Egypt a great civilization. This civilization was wholly dependent on the life-giving waters of the Nile. And an attack on the Nile was nothing less than an attack on Egypt itself and indeed an attack on their gods. Second, we can see it in the fact that he gives frogs. In the second plagues, the people of Egypt worshipped one of their primary gods was the goddess Hecht who is the goddess of fertility. 
Hecht was portrayed as a pregnant being that was part man and part woman. In other words, could become pregnant in and of herself or himself. And the goddess Hecht was displayed and portrayed as being a human body with a frog's head. The Egyptians, this is who they are. And there's, this is Hecht is the goddess of fertility. But the question here, what God is saying is, who is the true God over opening and closing the womb? Who is the God who really gives and takes away life? Now, pharaohs, and it's interesting, is pharaohs, magician, or magicians can actually duplicate the feast. But he, what, what can't they do? It's interesting, they can't get rid of the frogs. Now, I find this quite comical, don't you? The problem is all the frogs are in everybody's space all the time, and the magicians of Pharaoh's answer is, hey, look, we can produce more frogs. And everyone's like, Pharaoh's like, yeah, take that, Moses, more frogs. Wait, we have more frogs. Oh, crud. And so what really needs to happen? They need to be able to get rid of the frogs. And so what does Moses do to prove that, what does he say? So you can know that there's a God like no other. He says, Moses, or Pharaoh, why don't you tell me exactly when you want God to get rid of the frogs? And I'll get rid of them right at that moment. So you can know it is not the working of the magicians. It is the working of God who rules over heaven and earth. One other plague. Another one is the, the cows and the livestock. There was anywhere from four to six different gods who were displayed by cows and livestock. In fact, there's various, uh, various gods in Pathor and Heth who were named, who had these images of livestock or as cows. In fact, there's one particular depiction of a pharaoh nursing at the teat of a cow. Again, a god attacking one of the gods of Egypt. By the way, I had very strange dreams this week. Last one that we looked at this morning is the darkness. We'll look at the tenth one next week and the taking of the firstborn son. But the last one is the ninth plague, darkness. And verses, this is this is an interesting one. In verse ten, chapter ten, verse twenty-one says this: And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness of the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. Now, what does it mean for a darkness to be felt? Robert Alter, who's actually a secular um, scholar, but a, one of the most well-renowned scholars of Hebrew literature, said this, that it is a darkness to be felt is a claustrophobic palpability of absolute darkness. This is a supernatural darkness in which a candle cannot even be lit for three days. Now, you look at that and go, okay, that's, that's nice. It's dark. That's, that would stink for a couple days. But that's not near as bad as, like, gnats, which some people believe are actually lice. And it's not as bad as flies and frogs everywhere. I mean, darkness. So we take a nap for a couple days. We again, you have to understand that this is an attack on the Egyptian gods because the, who was considered the most powerful god in Egypt was Ra, the sun god. And they believed that each day Ra would win a battle against the demon of darkness. And also Pharaoh in his physical representation, Pharaoh was also considered to be a god. And the god, the representation that he took on was the physical representation of the god Horos, the god of lights. And so here it is that the plague of darkness is coming directly and sticking his eye in Pharaoh's face and saying, you're most powerful God, and indeed you, Pharaoh, have nothing compared to me. You see, this plague was terrifying because here their most powerful God was rendered impotent in the face of who? The true and supreme God. And so here's what I want you to see, that this is a war. You know, of course, this means war. A war between Yahweh, the real God, and the fake, weak, impotent gods of Egypt. But it is more than that. It is actually even more than that. 
It is that the Lord is going against the ancient false gods. Now, we tend to look at this and go, yeah, that's some, some wooden creatures and some weird paintings. And they got, that's not that hard for the true God to defeat those ancient gods. But what's going on here is that God is actually doing battle against spiritual forces. And this can be seen actually in the prologue to the plagues when, when Moses and Aaron give the sign of the snakes. It's the battle of the snakes. This is a prologue giving an emblem or a symbol of all that's coming in the plagues itself. The snakes are a sign of he throws down the staff and it becomes a snake in Pharaoh's presence. And you have to understand this is, again, a direct confrontation to Pharaoh's authority because the symbol that was all over Pharaoh's authority and the stamp that he used was snakes. You may recall seeing the pictures of Pharaoh's headdress. If you remember old pictures of King Tut from your ancient history books, the famous pictures of him in his coffin and his headdress, there was that way that Pharaoh, reason why the Pharaohs had a headdress the way that they did, where it bulged out, was it mimicked the head of a cobra. They wore this upon their crown, to, and it was believed that the serpent was to give them divine power and authority. And then what we see is that Pharaoh's own Egyptians are actually able to mimic the turning of a staff into a snake. A snake. Now, many commentators go against this and just say, well, this is simply a mere parlor trip, but that's not what's going on. It would point to the fact that there are those who know how to take a snake and you can hit a particular pressure point on a snake's head such that it puts it into a living rigor mortis. And then it's still, and then you can actually hit that spot on the, on the, on the, the snake's head again and it'll, it'll begin to function again. But that's not actually what's going on here. Notice that the Bible, the way the Bible talks about this in Ephesians or Exodus is it doesn't say, well, and the magicians performed cool little party tricks. That's not what it says. It doesn't say, well, they played a trick. They did something physically to the snakes. That's not what it says. It actually says that they use their sorcery to bring this about. It actually gives them credit where credit is due. But actually, what we see throughout the scriptures is that where someone is able to actually mimic magic and the, um, resi- the putting aside of natural forces and to do crazy things in this world, that there is actually a spiritual demonic force that rests behind that. And that is indeed who Pharaoh is. Pharaoh is actually a, a physical and visible manifestation of a spiritual warfare that is going on in this world. Let me give you an example of this. Here is what Pharaoh would say. And hear the demonic undertones. When Pharaoh would become the Pharaoh of Egypt, he would say this as he was taking the throne. He would say, O great one, O magician, O fiery snake, let there be terror of me like the terror of thee. Let there be fear of me like the fear of thee. Let there be awe of me like the awe of thee. Let me rule a leader of the living. Let me be powerful a leader of spirits. That was their version of put your hand on the Bible and say, I agree to uphold the Constitution of the United States. Egypt is not merely, these are not simply gods that are small and paltry that we can laugh at. But understand what is going on behind this is that there is a spiritual warfare. And yet, what do we see throughout in these passages? And what is God claiming? He's saying that no matter whether it is a physical, visible ruler in this world, or whether it is the spiritual demonic forces that undergird them, my, your God, Israel, is greater. Yahweh is better. Yahweh is supreme. Yahweh is true. And the plagues were a picture not just for Egypt, but also for Israel to show that the Lord their God was more powerful than any other rival gods. In fact, this, this, this whole scene reminds me of an old movie I heard my own dad reference. 
And you remember seeing as a kid going to the movies, this was one of those kind of, they used to have like comics right before the main uh, movie. And there was a, one of the most famous comics ever was a comic called Godzilla vs. Bambi. And if you're familiar with this, oh, it's from 1969, in which there was Credit's role, and it's just this sweet, beautiful, kind of serene, pasteurized kind of music, and there's Bambi nibbling on grass. And then the movie begins, and here's the only movie, all that is the movie is, is Godzilla's foot just comes all of a sudden and squishes Bambi. And then the words come up, the end. This is what God is doing here. And therefore, what does this say to the people of Israel who are waiting in the plains of Moab to go into the land of Egypt? And what do they look? And they say, they have gods of Molech, and they have the Canaanite gods, and their gods are powerful and strong. Because remember, in the ancient Near East, at that time, the wealth and strength of a people represented the wealth and strength of the gods they served. And God is coming to Israel and saying, your God is greater and so I don't have time to drive in, dive into each of your various missions and try to apply this, but apply this to yourself. Where is it the Lord has called you to engage and God says to you, you think that there are powers and principalities there that are difficult to overcome and you think that there's stubbornness and the hardness of heart of my children or my grandchildren or the difficulty of that system of injustice and the evil spirits and forces that are at work there. God says, I am greater. And in fact, Paul picks this up. That we are in a spiritual battle, not simply against flesh and blood. He says this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And God's answer over and over and over again against this in the scriptures is, your God is greater. You have the true God. And so who is the Lord that we should obey him? Who is the Lord that we should take up the mission that he's called us to take up? Even though we're scared, and even though it appears that there are systems of evil and injustice in this world, and we have to confront it and face it, even though we're dealing with those who are hard-hearted and difficult to deal with, that God said, I am the God of gods, and I am the Lord of lords, and I am the King of kings. Take no fear. Have courage, for I am with you. And so Pharaoh asks, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And God answers very clearly, I am the true God, the supreme God rules over all things. But second, as the true king and true Lord, God also says, I am the judge. I am the judge. Who is the Lord, Pharaoh asked, that I should obey him? And God goes, be wary. I am the judge. There is in running throughout these chapters of reflections of revealing on what the Lord did to Pharaoh. Did you hear it over and over again? At the end of each of the plagues, or may, I might also phrase it this way, how Pharaoh reacted to the revealing of the Lord as supreme. What was Pharaoh's reaction? We know that throughout the accounts of the plagues that Pharaoh's heart is increasingly hardened at the revealing of the Lord. Now, real quickly, what does it mean to harden your heart? The Bible, when it talks about the heart, is talking about the, not just to your feelings, as we usually talk about it, but it's the center out of which you live. Your heart is your deepest desires. And out of your heart flows not just your feelings, yes, your feelings, but how you feel, how you think, how you act, and how you live. And so a hardened heart means that Pharaoh is becoming increasingly calloused in all areas of his life. That he has less and less, he had very little to begin with, less and less of a desire to actually obey God and submit to God. Now the place of real consternation for us as readers is the question, who hardens Pharaoh's hearts? Does God harden Pharaoh's heart? 
Or does Pharaoh harden Pharaoh's hearts? In other words, was the Lord in control over Pharaoh? Did the Lord harden his heart? Or did Pharaoh have choice and free will? And therefore, was, was Pharaoh morally responsible for the hardness of his heart? And you know what the Bible's answer throughout this account is? Yes. Yes. The Bible says both are true. And that that's hard to understand. But it's what it says. God is always in control. You cannot thwart his will. And yet we have freedom and are held morally responsible. And whenever we talk about God's work on human hearts, we enter into this mystery known as the divine sovereignty and human freedom or human responsibility. Paul himself takes up this idea in the book of Romans in chapter 9, where he wrestles with this whole idea of God being in charge of every little detail of ordaining all things, and yet he holds us responsible for the choices that we make. And in fact, you know who Paul uses as a case study for this? Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Where he says that God is sovereign over Pharaoh's heart. He rules and reigns. He can rule and control that, and yet Pharaoh is also held responsible for the hardening of his heart. What we must be willing to recognize is that the scriptures teach both. And the Bible says that God is absolutely control for ordaining all things by the word of his power. And yet somehow at the same time, human beings are moral free agents making choices without coercion from God. In other words, it is possible what we must see in looking at this to apply this rightly is we must see this story from two different perspectives. First perspective is to see it from the Lord as the moral ruler of this world. And it is the Lord who hardens Pharaoh's heart as an act of judgment. As an act of judgment. We might call this a judicial hardening. Let me explain it this way. When men sin, when we have sinned against God, we are sinful in his sight before a holy God. And yet God in his mercy does not allow us to become as evil and depraved as we could be. And not only that, but he sends light after light after light into our our life, whether it be through God's good creation or the proclamation of those around us who would come and give us the good news about the good and true God who rules and reigns over us. And we can, we may have the ability by his grace and his goodness, first and foremost working in us, to receive him, to be humbled But when men rejects the gracious gift of God over and over and over again, God judges their rejection by doing what? Sometimes he brings natural consequences in their life. But what we see over and over and over again is that he lets them simply become more and more hardened and more and more blind. That when people say to God, I want nothing to do with you, God's increased response is, okay, you can have nothing to do with me. I will leave you alone. Let me see. The best example of this is in Romans chapter 1. You can see the progression of judicial hardening in the justice of God in it. It says this in Romans 1 verses 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That means they know it, but they suppress it. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Drop down. Since the end to verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that we are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So Paul says that men know God. They have light. We have the light of seeing that God has made this world and revealed himself. But what have we done with it? 
What do we do? We live by it? No, we continue to reject him and his revealing of himself in this world. We suppress the truth. We block it out. We stick our hands in our ears and we go, la, 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 la. I don't want to hear this. And so how does the Lord punish us? Verse 22 through 26. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Sounds familiar, right? Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. In other words, God's response to us saying, we don't care about you, we'll take your created things, and you can be gone, is okay, I'll give you up to simply created things. In verse 25, it says it again, but they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator rather than the creature who is blessed forever. And for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Because they turned away God, God simply gives them over in other words, in other words, Brandon's one is saying, and what is occurring in Exodus is that God is giving Pharaoh and Pharaoh's heart over to simply his desires as an act of judgment. And while no singular or particular sin is too deep that God's redemptive work of grace cannot reach, but there comes a time where we have silenced and, and hardened our hearts to that offer of grace that God finally says, that's it, no more chances. There are no more opportunities. I will not keep my foot in the door of your heart. You may do what you wish. You may slam it on me, and I will knock no more. He gives us what he wants, what he wants. Now, we don't know when that time has come. Perhaps it's in this life, or perhaps it comes at the point of death. But that time comes as a result of his place as judge. And that has implications for the second perspective we need to see out from this. The second perspective, the first is that God is judge. And he hardens hearts as an act of his judgment. But the second is this. Do not harden your hearts. That from the perspective of man, who has a role and are morally responsible, that the call of the scriptures is to Pharaoh and to us is, what happened to Pharaoh can happen to you too. You can form such a pattern of hardening yourself that you cease to have any way of becoming unhardened. You see, God is making us with a will and giving us moral responsibility. And we as humans are so created that God has shaped us in such a way that the choices that you make contribute to the forming of your heart character. And character thus formed promotes the making of similar choices in the future. If you can use the idea of, of forming a habit as an illustration to this to help you understand how, how this works... Sometimes, if you're trying to form a new habit in your life, sometimes it takes a series, a day in and day out of the same choice. I will not eat that. I will not eat that. I will not eat that. But we, whereas at some point where we have made a point of decision and in shaping our character and are saying no to that, at some point we are no longer addicted to that product, but now have actually built in the habit of saying no so that our body and our character and our will are actually formed in such a way that we're used to saying no to that. And at the same way, it goes the opposite direction as well. What no one knows is when the point of no return will be reached. When in forming an, a bad habit, an addiction to illicit material or an illicit product is, I can, I can break this addiction. Uh, this is just a bad habit right now. But there comes a certain place in which we actually fall headlong in which we may seduce ourselves into thinking, well, I can actually still give this up when we don't know any, we don't realize that it totally has our hold on us. 
None of us can say one more sound choice in this, we have reached a good habit. This prohibited habit is permanently mine. And nor can we say I can risk one more choice and still retain freedom and ability to give up a bad habit. Sadly, we can pass the point where we no longer are free because our character has so hardened. We've become morally inflexible in such a way that we say to God, no, one too many times. And God finally says, I will knock no longer. And so if you, ref- if you refuse to obey God's voice, if you keep refusing and resisting, resisting God's voice and stiffening your neck, do you see that you're on dangerous ground? You are hardening your heart. And for just a moment, I would actually like to very much particularly point to you who are covenant children. This is not just directed, directed at Pharaoh. This is directed at the second generation Israel. People who grew up who were being circumcised, who were part of God's people, who God said the covenant is for you, and you can embrace the covenant and its blessings, or you can receive the cursings of the covenants. You can receive it by faith and receive the blessings, or you can hear of God and the goodness of him over and over and over again and reject him time and time again. And there is a time in your life where God might say, no longer. And so do not wait, kids. Do not wait to bow the knee and say, to, frankly, to not follow the example of Pharaoh, but instead when God brings difficult things in your life, that is not because he hates you, it's because he longs to bring you back to himself. And he is saying, cry uncle and submit to me. That one of the blessings of being a part of the covenant is God, as it says in Hebrews, is God punishes, he disciplines those he loves. And God is actually trying to discipline Pharaoh, and yet Pharaoh, in hardening his heart, ultimately God closes it for all, and for once and for all. And I would say to you, O Israel, to you, O church, do not close your heart to God's. To you young men who are tampering and tinkering with addiction, your heart can become hard. Do not give yourself over to it one more time. Do not say, I can dabble in this one more time, but instead throw yourself at the mercy of God. And so may I plead to you, submit to the Lord's reign. Pharaoh didn't do it to disastrous effect. To disaster effect. But God is continuing. While you here are hearing the earshot of God's word, God is still offering to knock on your heart and that you would submit to it. Now, one last thing I want to communicate to you this morning, because if I leave you here, we can't get to the Lord's Supper. Because this is bad news. The first two reasons will show you why God deserves your worship and why he deserves for you to know his name, to obey him, but it won't capture you and it won't woo you, right? Doesn't it say that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance? It's his kindness that leads us to, to obedience. And so how will we get there? We got to see the last thing that God shows us in the plagues. And that is that the Lord is the merciful savior. The whole reason, why does God give the plagues? Yes, to punish and to challenge and to tell Pharaoh who he is, but also There's a consequence, a good consequence of the wrath of God. God's judgment comes down on Pharaoh and Egypt, and and that becomes the means of what? Israel's salvation. And in fact, God uses his plagues to distinguish between those who are his people and those who are not his people. You actually begin to see this throughout the various plagues in which uh, Israel is not affected by the negative consequences of the plagues. For example, in chapter 8, verse 22, God says, For on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell. 
And he says in verse 23, thus I will put a division between my people and your people, Pharaoh. And in chapter 9, verse 4, but the Lord made a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. The whole point of the plagues is they are meant to save. Now, isn't that crazy? That we have a God who is able to save, not, to, not apart from judgment, but through judgment. And in fact, this is the pattern that runs throughout Scripture. The plagues are meant to, as a means of release. God is a warrior and a savior and a deliverer of Israel by judging Egypt. And this will be a theme that runs throughout the history and the life of Israel. Have you ever read the Old Testament prophets? What are they, how, they are so unbearable to read. You know why? Because here's how it goes. For chapter after chapter, the prophets go, hey, Israel, this bad thing's going to happen, and then this bad thing's going to happen, and this bad thing's going to happen. And then you can make it two verses where suddenly it goes, but yet through that judgment, God will lead you to repentance, and through that, I will save you. That we have a God who doesn't save apart from judgment, but can actually save through judgment. Through judgment. And he saves his people Israel, his merciful goodness, that he keeps covenant with Israel and actually saves them as the deliverer, is the warrior for them. But I want you to see that God is not simply the merciful savior for Israel. He's also the merciful savior for Egypt as well. You see, if God wanted to crush Egypt, he could have done so with a finger snap. In fact, he said so. In Exodus chapter 9, verses 15, in the midst of all of these plagues, God says this, For by now I could have put my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. He's been doing the pestilence. But we read the last part. And you would have been cut off from the earth. In other words, what he's saying to Egypt is, this is flies and livestock and boils and And even taking the firstborn is nothing. I could wipe you out like that. And yet I haven't done so. Why? Because in the previous verse, it tells us why. Verses chapter 9, verse 14. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me on earth. What does God want? He wants to save Egypt too. He wants to save Egypt too. So they might know that he is the Lord and that one day they may be turned turn to him and be rescued from all of God's wrath and all of God's judgment. In this story, Egypt and the Egyptians are the enemies of God and God's people. But God wants Egypt to know this, that not just, he's not just trying to crush them. He wants them to see that he is the true God so that they would turn to him. You see, this is not the last time that we will hear about Egypt in the biblical accounts. What you'll actually see in a couple weeks, when when Israel is leaving in the Exodus, when they finally, Pharaoh says, get out of here, there will be this one little note in the margin almost, in which God will say, and there was a mixed company amongst the Israelites. What does that mean? That there were Egyptians who heard these things, who saw the plagues and turned to God. And yet not only that, later on, in all of those great prophetic texts in Isaiah and Jeremiah, there's this This text in Isaiah 19, verse 20 to 25, follow along. It says, Then this will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and a defender to deliver them. It's not talking to Israel. It's talking to Egypt. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering, and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them, and the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. 
Yes, through judgment, he will heal them. Striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In verse 24, in that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people. It's a surprise of surprises. Egypt, my people. I will strike them down now, but one day I will return to deliver them. You see, the Old Testament story centers around the Hebrews, but God's ultimate purpose has always been for the nations. And the Lord longs for the world to know that there is one God who can deliver us from all all oppressors, including oppressors that are far worse than those who are physically and judicially ruling over us and enslaving us. There is an oppressor far worse than Egypt. It's the oppressor behind Egypt, spiritual forces of sin and darkness. And why will Egypt turn to the Lord's? Because one day they will see this God, not the God of the Nile or Ra or Pharaoh, deserves worship because God alone can bring salvation through judgment. That is what is unique about the God in Jesus Christ. He brings salvation through judgment. And when will Egypt see that? At another day of plague. Another day of plague. You see, a thousand years after the plague of darkness in Exodus 10, darkness once again came on the earth. When was that? On a Friday afternoon, it says, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until about the ninth hour. While Jesus is on the cross, there is darkness at high noon. In other words, what is going on there? This time, instead of the plagues coming down on the enemies of God's people, but on on the cross, all the judgment of God comes down on one place. Jesus, the Son of God, became the enemy of God. And God's righteous judgment fell on him. In fact, in fact, you can actually see it in the text. We read it a minute ago. In Exodus 9, verse 14, it says this, For this time, this time, this time, he says, I will send my plagues on you yourself. In the Greek translation of that, of what's going on there, of the Hebrew, the little Greek translation, what's called the Septuagint, what it reads there in Exodus 9, 14, it says, it says that I will send my plagues into your very hearts, the Pharaoh. And that one day on the cross, what Jesus had is the plagues, all the plagues of God's wrath and judgment were sent down on him. And by the mercy of God, we can know that all those plagues that God brought down on Egypt in order to free his people will never come down on us. Why? Because Jesus became Pharaoh for us. Because Jesus took our judgment. The Lord alone is a merciful judge who can save, not despite judgment, but through judgment. And that is what we come to celebrate this morning. If you're an elder, An usher, please come forward to serve communion as we come this morning to celebrate what God has done for us. And what we come to celebrate in this day at the the table of our Lord Jesus, when he was with the disciples before he went to the cross, before he faced the darkness of the plague of God's wrath and judgment. God instituted the Lord's Supper, and he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood that will be shed for you. And what Jesus is saying is my body, all the wrath of God will come down on me. So that those who have been running from me, perhaps my plagues have have not seemed to soften them. 
All my judgments haven't softened them. What if I come in unbelievable and unspeakable grace where I take all the plagues and the judgment of this world and all the things that we expect God would say about us because we know we're bad. And we know like Pharaoh, we've been shaking our fists at God and God says, you know what? And here's what I think what might change them. What might change them is when they see that I take my wrath that was supposed to be for them upon myself. And they will see that I will take the plagues on my own hearts so that they might be set free. And this is true for Egyptians and for Israelites alike. People of all tribes and tongues and nations. So let me ask you this. Some of you have been hearing about this Jesus character. And you have been, like Pharaoh, hardening your heart to Jesus. And so here's my question to you. How's that going for you? Pharaoh hardens his heart over and over and over again. How does it go for Pharaoh? It gets worse and worse and worse. Actually, most commentators look at the plagues and they say it's an unraveling of creation. It's a re-mimicking of God is reversing the created order. In other words, for some of you, you're looking, if you look at your life, you'd say, I'm not trusting in Jesus. I've rejected the God of the earth. I've rejected his son. And life is actually, God, my life is disintegrating. It's, as we would put it in our vernacular, it's going to pieces. Is your life going to pieces? And you're, is it going to pieces because you've not actually, you're, you're, you're never run to the one who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and you're trying to play God of your life? And this world, like ropes that you're trying to hold together, is pulling you apart with its demands and expectations. Come and set down your burden. Come and set down your burden. Come and put your faith and trust in one who took all wrath upon himself so that you might be set free from all the enslavement of this world. Now, if you have done that, if you've bowed the knee to King Jesus, and life is hard and tiring and exhausting, I would like to reintroduce you to who your Lord is. He's the God who is powerful above all things. He's the one who deserves to judge you for your sins. And yet he is the merciful judge so that the one who is above all things, who is powerful above all things, became small and weak so that he might be judged on your behalf. So that you may know that no matter what mission you face, what difficulty you face today and tomorrow, you might know that my God is with me and my God is for me. The night in which Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper and the night before he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Brothers, we stand.